drive through the green streets of Adelaide's western suburbs, arriving in the seaside suburb of Henley Beach. The car steadily rolls along Marble Street, and we crane our necks at the pine trees that run down either side. We stop at a beautiful house. Mr. Alak, this will be your new home, Rachel says. It's a big house with high ceilings and timber floors. It is filled with furniture, clothes, and items donated by various church groups and charities across Adelaide. For the first time in years, I will go to bed without hunger. I will sleep knowing that my family will be safe when I wake up again in the morning. In the weeks that follow, I explore our seaside neighborhood and discover supermarkets full of food. I am astonished at the variety and qualities on display. There's not just milk, but many brands and flavors. I had never imagined there could be chocolate milk, coffee milk, reduced fat milk, and so forth. I doubt any of the 20,000 lost boys were left behind and dreamed of such things either. I stroll on a beach for the first time, which is only a few hundred meters from the house. The smell of barbecue lingers in the air. The salty breeze is chilly yet refreshing. Couples walk their dogs. Toddlers play on the white sands. A vast blue ocean meets misty blue skies. It seems that everywhere I look, there are smiling faces and people ready to greet me with a cheerful, good day, mate. It warms my heart. I am in the great South land, a land girt by sea with boundless plains to share. To me, this is heaven. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Fremantle Press podcast called Love to Read Local Radio. That was Yuet Alak reading from his powerful memoir, Father of the Lost Boys. Today we are celebrating all things WA and local writers um, with our Love to Read Local Radio, a celebration that takes place from May to June. It's a statewide initiative to showcase WA's many wonderful writers and illustrators and the books they create. My name's Rebecca Higgy, and today our Love to Read Local episode is being recorded in isolation for all you listeners at home. Yurt is here to speak to me about his memoir, as well as the refugee experience, the secrets of writing a good memoir, and the power of the pen over the gun. Ewart hails from the village of Majak in South Sudan's Jonglei state. He migrated to Australia as a refugee with his parents in May 1995, having spent most of his childhood in Ethiopian and Kenyan refugee camps as one of South Sudan's lost boys. He is a mining professional with degrees in geoscience and engineering and has worked for some of the world's largest mining companies. Ewart, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. Now, um, once again, as I mentioned, we're recording remotely due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, you're at, you work for FMG, which involves a lot of fly and fly out, I believe. How has the pandemic impacted you and how you work? Well, uh, COVID-19 has drastically changed the work environment, uh, but I feel very fortunate to still be working and providing an essential service to our state. And obviously, mm. I'm also proud of the significant economic contribution that the mining industry is making to the country in these difficult times. So to minimize travel, my five for us has changed from a week on, week off to a two weeks on, two weeks off pattern. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there are significant changes at the camps, you know, with the closure of gyms, pools, and other outdoor gathering areas. So yeah. even lunches are now protected by catering stuff. So, and there are daily temperature checks. So the changes wow. are quite drastic. Yeah, yeah still, daily temperature checks. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good. I mean, it sounds it sounds good that they're making 
all those kind of allowances. Do you, I'm curious, do you have to do the 14-day um, uh, isolation or do you get um, exemptions because of the um, – yeah, because you're an, considered an essential worker? Yeah, we do get an exemption now because we're considered an uh, essential worker. Mm-hmm. So, but essentially, we can't leave the state, obviously, but we're allowed to go home and just carry on with our normal lives. Mm-hmm. But uh, prior to returning to site, we have to make a health declaration and a whole bunch of other forms and have to go to a, uh, a temperature check at the airport. And soon there'll be some new random testing kits, which uh, wow. we'll get to use at the airport to fly to flying up. So it's pretty full on. Wow, yeah, definitely. It's it's definitely affected you a lot more than me, you know, just being stuck at home a bit more with my son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Now, let's get to your wonderful memoir. Can you tell me, what is Father of the Lost Boys about? The Father of the Lost Boys tells the story of my family and especially my dad, Mr. Ajang Ala, who led almost 20,000 unaccompanied miners out of danger during Africa's longest-running civil war. It is an eyewitness account by me who trained as a child soldier and walked by my father's side, sometimes clutching an AK-47 as I slept next to him. And before taking on his central role with the now famous Lost Boys of Sudan, Dad was a prominent educator imprisoned by a government that served its own propaganda interests by announcing his death over the radio. We conducted his funeral only to discover months later that Dad was still alive. He returned to a hero's welcome and to one of the most challenging tasks imaginable. The story follows the Lost Boys as they journey through rainforest, savanna, and desert to escape the genocidal war and devastation. I saw my father at times of uh, immense stress, but also witnessed his determination to guide the Lost Boys towards a brighter future. Although many succumbed to starvation uh, and thirst, drowned in treacherous rivers, or died as a result of aerial bombardments, landmine explosions, gunshot wounds, and wild animal attacks, the majority of the Lost Boys survived. Their story is of global significance and has uh, featured on the BBC, CNN, and even the Oprah Winfrey Show. But Dad's remarkable story as leader, teacher, and father of the Lost Boys has never previously been told uh, until now, essentially. No one can come away from this book thinking your father is anything but a really remarkable man. Can you tell us a bit about his mission to champion the pen over the gun? Uh, Dad is a very smart Man, and as far as I can uh, recall, he has always championed the pen. Uh, Dad was sent to a bush school as a boy by his father, apparently because he was a bit naughty. But his father also saw his intelligence and believed, you know, once he learns English, uh, Dad would make a good translator for when uh, his people dealt with the British colonials. And from that point on, Dad caught the education back. And when the first Sudanese Civil War started, all schools across the South were closed. So Dad walked hundreds of kilometers with uh, some of his mates uh, all the way to Ethiopia. Uh, they became refugees there and uh, were able to get uh, uh, scholarships from the UN to continue uh, the education. And despite the adversities, Dad worked and managed, uh, Dad worked really hard and managed to get 100% in both math and physics. Uh, and as they say, the rest is history. But a quote from uh, the Godfather, which says, one lawyer with a briefcase can steal more than 100 uh, men with guns, illustrates my dad's belief in the pen. During our struggle, most of our leaders only envisioned the 100 men with guns, but not many saw the lawyer with a briefcase except dad. 
our people were being robbed and marginalized by men with briefcases, not only in Khartoum, but also in London and other places. And Dad strongly believed that only through education could our people appropriately challenge uh, those that were oppressing them uh, and win our cause. Yeah, well, despite... Another thing that comes across in the book is despite all of his achievements, despite the remarkable feat that he does through leading... At one point, you describe all the boys walking as being like over 10 kilometres. That was a very powerful image for me. Like, despite all this, he still seems to be a tremendously humble man. So I'm really curious, how does he feel about you writing a memoir about him? Yeah, Dad is glad I did this and he has been very (laughs) supportive and he has been very supportive uh, uh, throughout the whole writing and editing process. I pretty much shared everything with him, including the book cover. He was very happy with it before we approved it. Uh, mm-hmm. However, this book is yeah, however this book is only a snippet of his life. So mm-hmm. I'm still encouraging him to write his own book about the vast majority of his experiences that don't actually involve the Lost Boys or the war for that matter. Well, well that, and that would be fascinating because this book is very much from your perspective, um, you know, as being um, one of the Lost Boys. And, and I do want to, you mentioned before that you, you trained as a child soldier. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, I don't imagine that children preparing to fight in a war is part of Dinka culture. Can you comment on how the war changed how South Sudan boys relate to their masculinity? Yeah, so the Dinka and pretty much uh, most of the Sudanese are actually a peaceful people. So yeah. <laughs> before before the Ottomans and the Arabs and the British arrived, Atanma people even knew what war was. Of course, I imagine there would have been minor quarrels over, you know, water and all that. Uh, but that would definitely not have involved, you know, killing women or children of the elderly for that matter. Mm. So for young South Sudanese boys in the past, fighting in a war is something they would never have imagined. Mm. But when war is brought to your doorstep, uh, you know, when war was brought to them, when their villages and farms were burned down, when their mothers and sisters were raped, they really had to grow up real fast. Uh, so they had, to over, they had to become men in order to defend what is rightfully theirs. Mm. So the war changed entirely what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be masculine within a dinner context, mm. uh, which apparently now involved a gun, uh, something that was unknown to uh, previous generations in the South. Mm. Um, yeah, it's re- it's remarkable how violence, um, that's one thing that comes through your book, One, how violence can completely change the humanity of person. And there's the most, for me, the most harrowing part of the book is in um Gillo, where hundreds of women, their babies, and some of the lost boys are slaughtered by Ethiopian rebels. And I just, yeah, I, I kept just going, this is so senseless. Um, why did this happen? Um, so I, I want to know from someone who's who's witnessed these terrible things, what do you think causes a person to lose so much of their humanity that they can go out and butcher women and children? I think the nature of war is said that it, it deprives us of our humanity and it dehumanizes the person, you know, the babies, the children, mm. the women and the elderly. So, and we saw it in Nazi Germany, we saw it in Vietnam and the former Yugoslavia and we certainly saw it in Rwanda. Uh, so, I guess when you are raised in hell, you become a devil. That's essentially yeah. what uh, war does. So, and obviously the Lincoln question, even decades later, it's always why, you know? Yeah. Why Why did this have to happen? Why did it have to happen to us? 
So, and I really don't have an answer to that. So, yeah, I don't sense, you know, normal civil people into beasts and into devils, but that's the nature of war, I suppose. I think I think that's a, what you said now is a very powerful thing. If you're raised in hell, you become the devil. That's a very, um, you know, they're, they're, that's a very powerful thing. It's not that there's something inherent in anyone that makes them do this. It, it's it's I imagine often the circumstances of being in such an extreme, violent, traumatic situation that you kind of, um, you know, some, sometimes you become you become brutalized and then you brutalize others. Perhaps I don't I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah. That, that's the case. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. I I know. I, I'm giving you some difficult questions, aren't I? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Um, well, let let me let me talk about something that's um a bit more light. Um, there are many times in the book where stories are shared. Um, there's a really nice moment where your father is telling you a bedtime story about a king who keeps demanding to hear a story that's so long it goes on forever. And um, in another section, you stay up in the rain telling old, lame stories. So can you share a little of how stories and storytelling helped you and the Lost Boys through your arduous journey? Yeah, so the stories are essentially part of the African soul, you know, the African psyche. Uh, Mm. Because stories tell tell you who you are and obviously also who you should not be. So Mm. stories inspire but also entertain. And throughout the journey, I would imagine there would have been thousands of stories shared uh, between uh, boys and you know, their friends or their teachers. Uh, some stories would have been to inspire, some to provide hope, some to momentarily transport you to a different world, and mm-hmm. and others to make you laugh, which obviously would have been a great uh, distraction from the reality that engulfs. Uh, so storytelling uh, actually keeps hope alive, uh, I would say. And mm. everybody in Africa is a storyteller, but of course, some do it better than others. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, so yeah, so stories are really uh, critical to to the African society. Yeah, and now, now um, I also I want to move a lot more, even more forward into the book to another happy moment where your family finally gets accepted to Australia and you're given a booklet where you learn about Indigenous Australians for the first time. And you really charmingly note that you and your family feel pleased that you won't be the only black people in Australia. I really like that. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, So I'd love to know, um, having been in Australia for so long now, how have your perceptions about Australia changed and what do you think stayed the same, if anything? Yeah, oh man, a lot has changed in the last 20 odd years I've been here. Yeah. Uh, I certainly have a much better appreciation of what the Indigenous people have actually been through. I've read a lot mm. of Indigenous history, you know, and uh, I've also obviously come, you know, to the rea- realization that uh, Australia is, you know, not the heaven on earth that I imagined when I landed in Adelaide all those mm. years ago. But it is still one of the greatest nations on earth, and we're all lucky to be here. You know, whether you're from a convict past or a recently arrived refugee. And uh, I've seen, obviously, Australia change as the world has changed. Uh, so a lot of the change is not unique to Australia. Uh, but I'm still not a huge fan of the AFL, unfortunately. <laughs> but I do like my soccer. <laughs> I, I was brought up by a man who, you know, actually played in, you know, the state... Um, Victorian Football League, and I have no interest in AFL either. So don't worry, we're we're we're, we're both the same there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when uh, West Coast or three are uh, actually playing, 
I support them, of course. I go for W two and the Cross and Port Adelaide from my hometown. So yeah. What would you do if you, we had a Port Adelaide versus a WA team? Do you think who'd you go for? Oh, it's a hard split. I actually went to a game years ago featuring uh, Port and Freer, so I didn't go for any of them in that case, but I just went to... That's very safe. <laughs> yeah, very safe. Very safe. Really nice game with uh, a one-point win. I didn't turn out quite like that, but yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, now, now you, you did say, yeah, um, your perspective of Australia has changed. Um, you, you know, um, you're still, you still feel very lucky to be here, but it's not the heaven you expected. I... I, I imagine some of that might come with, like, the loss of, of leaving your own home. Yeah, of course. Leaving one's home is always difficult. And I don't... Yeah. And, uh, but so you always do have those... Uh, those... Uh, that feeling, that draw, you know, from your home. And, of course, having been here for a long time, you know, you do realise you know, there's a lot of sadness here, there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of suicide, obviously. Mm. So, it's, uh, yeah. And reflecting back home, I really, I mean, prior to the war starting, those really happy memories of my, you know, childhood, you know, playing in the ponds, running around, being a really happy little kid. So, that image still plays in my mind. Yeah, of course. Obviously, there's, you know, the horrors of the war, but, you know, I don't let that take too much of a hole. No, and the, 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 the parts where you speak about your childhood, especially, um, like, keeping your goats are very charming. Yeah. Um, and, and how, like, you also, I think at some point you say that you um, were a bit frightened of the goats and the chickens at first. Yes, true. And, man, mm. I still wish I could keep goats at some stage. That would probably be my retirement plan is going back to the village and keeping goats. Uh, that sounds lovely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> true, true. Okay. Um, now, um, let's get into the writing of this book. Um, this is this is a very powerful memoir. I, I, I imagine there are people at home who would love to hear how you did this. So what are your top three tips for writers who want to write memoir? Oh, man. Yeah, writing a memoir is hard. I guess all I can say is uh, my three top tips would be for memoir writers would be to write from the heart. So you really should put your feelings onto the page. I think mm-hmm. that's one important tip. And the other one would be to create scenes. So break up into scenes, write it like a movie, so to speak. So take the reader there and make them hear the sounds and smells of that place you're describing. Mm. And the second one is pretty much a general tip about just writing well. So a good story has to be well told and well written. So again, show, don't tell. And obviously uh, try to maintain a consistent voice so the reader stays with you. I think those would be my three... Uh, top tips right from the heart create scenes yeah. and write well great and um, there are also um, even though this is very much told from your perspective there are parts um, where we, we we see there are scenes with your father that you either didn't witness or you were um, very very young when they happened so can you tell me how did you research these sections I think that has been uh, my primary source of uh, material but I've also mm-hmm. spoken uh, with many uh, relatives and countless lost boys 
Mm-hmm. I also uh, consulted historical books and uh, Britannic Encyclopedia for historical context. And I also used Google Maps just to check distances because I couldn't quite remember exactly. I remember walking for a month, but I couldn't remember <laughs> how really far that was, but we're also zigzagging. So uh, I've had to do a lot of work in just you know, cross-referencing uh, things uh, because writing non-fiction is actually quite hard because there's so much to check and double-check. And mm-hmm. of course, memory is fallible. So you know, I had to check with you know my brother, my sister, and others to see if they remember details of the same events, the same way I did. But sometimes I would, you know, remember a rainy day, but my brother or mom said, oh, actually, I think it was sunny. <laughs> so those well, kind of things yeah. are quite hard to work through. Yeah, and, and, and in, I guess in that case, who, who, how do you know what, what was actually happening? People would remember things differently. It's almost a democracy in a way where <laughs> I get dead, mom, and if four out of five say it was a sunny day, and I, I, I it was a sunny day, a, yeah, then it was a sunny day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and now, it's so hard because this happened so long ago as well. Uh, yeah, but it, it still feels very, very raw and very real. Like that, you you've obviously done a lot of research, and um, you know, it seems like you've you've got a perfect memory. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried my best, yeah. Yeah. Um, now you've also um, you've also got uh, quite a good skill with fiction. So you won a Centre for Stories mentorship and had your fiction published in the Ways of Being Here anthology. So you you can write fiction, you can write we- memoir. What I want to know is what is your next creative project going to be? Oh, if I'm you not can tell us. As much, yeah, I, I'm not <laughs> writing as much as I would like, you know, due to work and family commitments. But I'm uh, planning yeah. on starting a novel. Set, set within the Second Sudanese Civil War, but wow. uh, highlighting the special contribution that women actually made to the war. Quite often, this is overlooked. And mm. You hear of the lost boys, but there were lost girls, and there were women, you know, fighting in combat and mm-hmm. doing a whole lot of other uh, activities like taking care of kids, you know. So, women suffered a lot in the war, but that's really not highlighted. So, I would you know, I would like to write a novel that you know reflects that truth, which is uh, largely absent. I think I, I'd really love to read that. As there's a, there's a section in your book where you um, talk about kind of what what's called like the ladies' camp, and yep. the women who um, uh, the religious women who would come and really take care of the lost boys, and, and it was really beautiful just seeing how these women kind of turned around what was starting to be quite. A lot of animosity, the lost boys towards this women's camp, and the, these women just kind of turned it around. So I would, I would really love to read this book. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I can relate to not being able to have time to write, though. Yeah, that's it's, it's so yeah. hard. And hopefully, you know, if I could, uh, you know, more time in the future, I'd also just like to write a novel loosely based on my experiences in Australia and just mm. shedding light on the uh, migrant experience. Stories, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and that would be another wonderful thing. Yeah, um, so those are my dreams, but uh, it's hard finding time to write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can relate. Yeah, <laughs> um, full time work and all that, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you've actually kind of almost answered my next question. It's, it's, um, 
I've been thinking about how often the stories we hear about Africa are the horror stories. Um, and, and your your story is very harrowing, but you write about your homeland in a way that shows its beauty and its richness. And I really hope that the publishing industry will continue to kind of embrace a variety of African stories from different perspectives. So apart from the ones that you're going to write, what kind of African stories do you want to see more of? I think generally what gets published or broadcast, you know, is, is what sells in terms of Africa. You know, these are stories of women, poverty and famine and genocide. But stories of Africa's immense beauty and richness are, are hard to find. And stories of the hospitality and the kindness of the African people are rare. So we could certainly do with more of these uh, stories highlighting these, you know, beautiful things about Africa uh, rather than, you know, the war and and the poverty and so on. So, yeah, definitely stories that show more of the real Africa would would, would be fantastic. Uh, and as, you know, as they say, knowledge is power, so the more people know these truths, the more they, you know, the more they can be empowered to, to do better. It, it, it's funny you just said the real Africa. Um, my husband often talks about um, the imagined Africa versus the real Africa, and the imagined Africa is often like, you know, the, the myth of the dark continent, and the real Africa, you know, has so much depth and beauty and, like you say, hospitality and all these other things. So, um, yeah, I, I also would love to see more um, of the real Africa. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, since we're talking about what kind of stories, you know, we, we want to read, um, let's um, – I want to ask you what you're actually reading. Um, since we're celebrating all things WA in this Love to Read Local episode, what local WA books would you recommend to our listeners? So I uh, just started reading Return Ticket by John Dowse. So I think this is uh, this story resonates with me, and it's published by Fremantle Press as well. I think this yeah, story I've... resonates with me. I'm not too far into it, but, you know, just – Jack Muir, you know, seeking his own destiny and fame from what he doesn't want. Yes. And also his reflection on, you know, just remembering those who helped him uh, become a better person. I think I really like uh, this story and it's, it kind of resonates uh, with me a little bit. Yeah, I've I've read it too. It's it, I, I actually did an interview with John and um, oh, okay. yeah, he's a he's a really um, he's a really cool character and um, yeah, the book's really interesting. It goes across all kinds of areas, and yeah, it keeps touching on um, yeah, the people who have helped him become the man that he is. So I'm looking forward to finishing it. So don't run it from me, please. <laughs> okay, no, no spoilers, no spoilers. <laughs> and and also, I would just, I think I would just recommend anything from Natasha Lester, which is a West Australian former Hunger Ford winner mm-hmm. and a New York Times best-selling author. So I think her latest novel is The Paris Secret. Yeah, I, so, I, I see uh, it every time I go to a bookshop. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so really, I think I think all aspiring Australian writers should definitely read their work just to get an idea of what it actually takes to make it and the style of writing that actually gets you uh, to be a successful writer. So I would recommend anything by her. I think she's got a few, uh, five or six books out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those would be my recommendations at the moment. And obviously, I'm not reading as much as I would like, so... <laughs> Uh, Me too. <laughs> I've got so many on my wish list, but that I uh, haven't gotten to, and some I'll probably never get to. But yeah, I definitely aspire to be reading a lot more and a lot more uh, uh, WA content. Yeah, I um, I've also got that problem where um, apart from reading books for the podcast, most of the books I'm reading are for kids. 
Um, so, because I'm reading to my son all the time, and um, yeah. one, one book I'm really excited about is called um, it's, it's a kids book. It's a picture book called No Never. And it's no never, yeah. And it's illustrated by um, the WA illustrator Mel Pierce. It's it's really kind of really cheeky and charming, and um, there's a lot of like hidden details in the book, so that Mm. you can kind of you can read the book to your kid once, but then you can sit and like go through the pictures with them and see like the sneaky duck or the cute lion or whatever. So um, that's um, that's one that I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'll probably um, get it for my kids too. You should. It's, it's quite funny. Yeah. yeah, it's very. If you if you go if, if and people at home as well, Google no never just to look at um, Mel Mel's illustrations. Um, oh, okay. You know we've got amazing illustrators as well as writers in WA. So um, that would be my WA recommendation. Excellent. Yeah. That's good. Now um, I know we could talk. WA books all day, but um, we're coming to the end of our time, and I want to make sure we have enough time for, for you to read some passages from your book. Yep. Um, before we do, I've got one more question, and it's actually a question um, I've stolen from you. Towards yep. the end of your book, you ask, um, "How do I become a true Aussie while maintaining my identity as a citizen of the place I was forced to leave behind?" So. What I want to ask, I have two questions. For any refugees and immigrants new to Australia, what advice would you give on this specific issue? And what advice would you have for Australians on how we can better support new Australians in maintaining their rich cultural heritage? Uh, I think to new refugees, I would just say be yourself. Quite often, uh, a lot of new immigrants try too hard to to impress and to be accepted, and, and in the process, they fail horribly. So seek to be understood, but also... Uh, to, under, to understand. So again, do not judge too soon and to and just take the time to understand what makes Australians tick, you know. Take the time to understand Australian uh, history and culture and how you know it evolved over time. Mm-hmm. And I, then I think you'll have a, a fairly good time, you know, uh, setting yourself up and moving on. And I think to the rest of Australians, you know, to better support new uh, immigrants and new Australians, uh, I would just say that we should also first seek to understand. And the best way to do that is to listen to, the, to this uh, new immigrant that have just arrived. So don't rush to tell them how lucky they are to be here because we all are. So yeah. Australia, and essentially Australia is already a multicultural society. You know, I've been to Greek, Italian, Texas, African and Arab festivals uh, all over Australia. I mean, by that, I mean Adelaide and Perth. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I've had a few beers at St. Patrick's celebration. You know, I've attended a NADOC celebration. So mm-hmm. the more of these festivals we have, uh, the better, because they are all Australian festivals. So And new immigrants actually make our country great. So all I yeah. tell everybody, just listen to the uh, stories understand where they come from, what they've been through. And, uh, yeah, and through that, can you then best understand uh, how to help them? Because quite often, a lot of people, you know, go wrong, but with good intentions, you know, they really want to help, but they just don't know how to. So yeah. the best way is, is just to ask how you can be of help, and they'll tell you what they need. Mm. Yeah, yeah I- I really like what you said about like like seek to be understood, but also be yourself. I think that's very important. I think we're better to have um, like a diverse, rich kind of um, multicultural heritage rather than just a kind of monoculture. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Mm. 
Now, before we go, we're going to now have a second passage from Yurt's book. This is us arriving at a refugee camp in Ethiopia. It's June 1988, scantily covered in rags. Thousands of malnourished boys roam the landscape, searching for scraps to eat. Thousands more lie under trees, naked and starving. Many will never wake up to see the dawn of a new day. War has brought me to a land far from my own. All I've ever known is left behind. All I've ever loved. I am in the midst of 16,000 unaccompanied boys. I call them my dear brothers, but the world calls them the lost boys of Sudan. Most of us are between 8 and 12 years old. I myself have just turned 9. We are refugees incarcerated in an open-air prison. The stench of death fills the humid air. Tracks worn by young feet lead to parasites in the bush. Even now, boys are carrying deceased friends to a final resting place. Their faces are covered in misery, but they can cry no more. Many succumb to madness. They are tied to large trees and left there, shouting out to Russian mothers as they lie in debt stained by their own urine of fishes. Sympathetic passers-by throw food scraps to them. By the middle of 1988, Tanyindu has come to resemble a concentration camp. Countless boys die every day. Others better disease. Their lives left behind in the villages seem idyllic now. But they must build new lives without the guidance of their mothers and fathers. To survive, they must become men. That was Ewart Alak reading from his book, Father of the Lost Boys. You can find it at fremantlepress.com.au and many local bookstores who can deliver straight to your house. Love to Read Local Radio is brought to you by Fremantle Press with support from the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. Love to Read Local is an initiative brought to you by Writing WA to celebrate WA's unique and powerful local writers and illustrators. Check out the show notes at fremantlepress.com.au for more details and make sure you join us in celebrating your own Love to Read Local by stocking up on a few WA stories this month. If you enjoyed our chat today, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Rebecca Higgy and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of the Fremantle Press podcast. <laughs>